I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, starting right where we left off last week at verse 38. For all of Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus has been in a conflict with the Pharisees. First, he healed someone on the Sabbath, which they thought was downright criminal. But Jesus said he could heal on the Sabbath because he is greater than the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the King of rest. And then he went and healed someone who was blind and mute and demon-possessed, and they didn't like that. The Pharisees said that he could only do that because he was in league with Satan. It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons, which is just about the most evil thing you could say. Jesus basically said that it was unforgivably evil to say if that was their true position to take. And then Jesus said, it's no wonder they said something so evil because their hearts were so evil. They had snake hearts. And it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and that everyone will have to give an account for every careless word that has overflown from their... Overflown? Is that a word? Overflowed from their mouth. And that brings us right to verse 38. What do you think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are going to say next to Jesus? What do you think Matthew will report to us that came out of the overflow of their hearts next? Oh, we're sorry. Oh, sorry for doubting you. Sorry for rejecting you. Sorry for calling you the prince of demons. Please forgive us. No, that's not what they said. I'm afraid there was no repentance at all. Instead, it was a demand for further evidence. And by the way, you and I, we don't demand anything from Jesus. It doesn't work that way. When Jesus answers their demand, he calls them, when he, when he gives them an answer, he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. And later on, he repeats that and calls them this wicked generation. That's what I want to make the title of today's message. A nice, encouraging title for this Christmas season. This wicked generation. Jesus uses some pretty strong language here. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't mince words. He tells it like it is. He tells the truth. He tells them what they need to hear. And what we all need to hear as well. So let's pray together once again. And then jump in. Father, we're, we're thinking a lot about Carolyn right now. I know she's on our hearts. We pray you would comfort her. We pray that you would make her, her journey easy. And we pray you would strengthen Michael and the rest of the family around them as they care for her. Lord, we're, we're thinking of Bob. We pray for peace for his heart as he goes into quadruple bypass surgery tomorrow. We pray, Father, that the doctor's skill would be in evidence and that his recovery period would go much easier than, it think, than we might think. We pray for Eleanor as she doesn't understand all this, that you would calm her heart. And we pray for the boys and their families as they do understand and they're concerned for him. Lord, we pray for little Jocelyn. Thank you for her progress. Thank you that she's moved from ICU to the normal peds uh, floor. But we know she's not home yet, and that uh, Bill's there, and Shasta's here, and then they transfer, uh, and there's a lot of traveling going on back and forth. 
Lord, these and many others are on our hearts that have been mentioned today, and some that haven't been mentioned. I know there's, there's folks with, there's a broken heart in every pew. Lord, I pray that you would give the grace that each one needs, the comfort and the strength and the perspective and the truth. And now I pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus in on this word from you because this is your holy word and it's our portion of your word for today. Your word came and I ate it. It was my joy and my heart's delight for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Lord, make Jeremiah 15, 16 true for us. Help us to to feast on your word and for it to change us. We pray it in the name of Jesus, its focus, its center, and our Lord. Amen. This morning I have picked out three key words to center our focus on this particular passage. And the first of these three words is the main thing that this wicked generation was unwilling to do. It is to repent. The very thing that John the Baptist had been preaching. Remember chapter 3 when John the Baptist came on the scene and he said, Repent, turn around, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he baptized Jesus and then Jesus started preaching and what was his message? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in chapter 10, Jesus sent out the disciples and he said, preach the gospel of the kingdom. What was their message? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. The king of heaven himself is near. But this wicked generation, these these people around him, these people to whom he was sent, would have none of it. Instead, they asked for more proof. Let's read Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Now, if that was all that we'd ever heard about these folks, it might have been okay. In general, it's not a sin to ask God for a sign. You can ask. But it is a sin to demand a sign from God. And that's basically what they were doing. Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. So where is it? Get up here and dance. We want to see some pyrotechnics, Jesus. Turn on the magic show. We'll be the judges here. You're the the contestant. This is not a request. This is a rejection. Right? This is not a request. This is a rejection. I mean, what more do they need? What has happened in this chapter so far? Has Jesus given any signs? He just did some miracles. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. They didn't like that sign. Jesus healed a demon-possessed, mute and blind man. They didn't like that sign. Remember all the miracles of authority that we saw in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11? Remember what Jesus told John the Baptist's disciples when John was doubting. Remember when he said, see what I'm doing? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And the Pharisees say, well, yeah, that's good, but what else you got? 
We want some more proof, Jesus. We want some more highly symbolic miracles to prove that you are who you say you are. We want a spectacle. We want fireworks. We want incontrovertible proof that you are the Messiah, and we want it now. We would like to see a miracle, please. Jesus knows that this is not a request. This is a rejection. Nothing will convince these guys. They don't want to be convinced. And that's a problem. So here's how Jesus responds. Look at verse 39. He answered, huh. That's in the original Greek, okay? Huh. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, when Jesus says that this generation is adulterous, I don't think he means that these people were especially given to extramarital affairs. He's talking about spiritual adultery, isn't he? Being unfaithful, not to your spouse, but to your Lord. That's a theme that runs through the whole Old Testament, doesn't it? Spiritual adultery. Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel especially wrote about this concept. The Lord should be our first love above all others. And idolatry is being unfaithful to Him and putting something else in His place. Spiritual adultery. And Jesus says that this generation, this cohort of contemporaries is wicked and spiritually adulterous. And you can know it by their demanding of a sign. A miraculous sign. A a heaven-sent proof after everything that they've been given, and on top of all of it, they want a sign. S-M-H, right? Shaking my head. That's what Jesus is doing right here, right now. He says the answer is no. Look at verse 39 again. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the only miracle that I will do on demand. I will be like Jonah. You guys remember Jonah from the Old Testament? He was a very reluctant prophet, wasn't he? He did not want to preach repentance to the Ninevites because he knew that the Lord was gracious and he didn't want his enemies to be forgiven. So he ran away. But the Lord did want Jonah to preach repentance to the Ninevites, and he sent a giant fish to make sure he got there. Everybody thought Jonah was dead. They tossed him overboard into the Mediterranean Sea. You don't come back from that. They were nowhere close to shore. They were killing him when they tossed him overboard. But Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 says, But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And then the very next verse says that that the, the fish vomited him up onto dry ground. I won't, I, I won't uh, pretend to show you what that was like. And he went and then he preached to Nineveh. I wonder what he looked like. I mean, what would you look like after three days and three nights in fish guts? He probably was a really scary looking dude. 
I wonder what the Ninevites thought when they saw him and heard him. Whatever they thought, they repented. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, this generation. For they, the men of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. There he goes again. Who does he think he is? Earlier this chapter, Jesus said he was greater than King David, that he was greater than the priesthood, that he was greater than the temple, that he was even greater than the fourth commandment. Now he adds to his list, he's also greater than the prophet Jonah. Jonah didn't really die. Got swallowed up by the fish, spit back out. He didn't actually die. Jesus is going to actually die. And on the third day, rise again. And he's on a roll, so he goes for one more. Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, this generation. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Do you remember the queen of the south? Queen of Sheba? We learned about her back in the books of Kings. It's in 1 Kings chapter 10. This queen was probably from modern-day Yemen at the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, very far from a, for a head of state to go on an international tra- uh, trip. But she had heard about the splendor and the wisdom of Solomon, so she came up to check him out, and the Bible says that when she saw it all, she was breathless. Remember that? <gasps> like the breath went out of her. She could... She was a queen, but she'd never seen anything like Solomon in his kingdom, and she had never seen wisdom like Solomon had at that moment. And Jesus says, and now one greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about himself. That's who we've been singing about this morning with amazing superlatives. Everybody knew he was talking about himself. What a rebuke this was of them. Do you get, do you get the rebuke in his voice? The principle is that the more you know about Jesus, the more accountable you are. The more you know about the Lord, the more accountable you are for what you know. Were the men of Nineveh Jews? Did they have the law? No. Were they Pharisees? No. Far from it. What about the queen of Sheba? Was she she Jewish? No. Was she a Pharisee? Was she a teacher of the law? Had she grown up knowing all about her Old Testament? No. Here's Jesus' logic. How much more should the Pharisees be able to recognize their Messiah than the men of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba? But did they? No, they certainly did not. They, They asked for another sign, please. We might follow you if you have another good trick up your sleeve. The more you know about Jesus, the more important it is to act on it, to repent. And these people had Jesus right there in front of them. Jesus says that the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south will give testimony against this wicked generation at the judgment because they knew less about the Lord and they still repented. What do you know about the Lord? You are accountable for what you know. 
You need to act on it. You need to repent. You need to repent of any and all spiritual adultery. You need to repent of any and all wickedness. And that includes especially the wickedness of, ready for this? Religiosity. Remember, when Jesus calls these people wicked, it's not because they were selling drugs or molesting children or trafficking women. They were the most religious people in the land. They had their lives straight. But they were rejecting Jesus. And they were putting all kinds of things in His place. Of what do you need to repent today? Where are you working at repentance in your life? Martin Luther called the Christian life a race of repentance. What areas of your life are in danger of taking the place of the Lord and need to be ruthlessly rooted out? Have you repented in the first place and trusted Jesus as your Savior? Because that's the first and most important place to turn around, to do the U-turn, to repent, and number two, to receive, to receive Jesus. In verses 43 through 45, Jesus tells a parable. It's a really strange one. At first, it seems like he's teaching us how things work in the demonic world, and secondarily, he might be. But his main reason for telling this story is the punchline about this wicked generation in verse 45. So you have to understand that to understand this parable. Look at verse 43 with me. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, he's not changing subjects, right? When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So it's a parable. This chapter has been all about exorcism and who is the prince of demons and who is Jesus. So Jesus uses exorcism as an illustration. He says that suppose somebody does an exorcism and the evil spirit has to wander in the desert a while and can't find a place to rest, which is some fascinating information I don't know what to do with. And then it comes back to the original host person and finds that person is still empty. He hasn't filled up this house of his heart with a new occupant. So the spirit calls up seven of his brothers, seven of his bad boy brothers, and, and he, they turn the place into a demonic frat house. The final condition of that man is worse than the first condition was. What's the point of this story? It's not, how do things work in the demonic realm? Look at the punchline again. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. See, it's a parable. He's saying that King Jesus has come and is cleaning house. The demons are getting booted left, right, and center. The strong man stands no chance against Jesus, the home invader. But, but this wicked generation isn't inviting Jesus in. 
Jesus is cleaning house around here. The kingdom is coming, but this wicked generation is rejecting Him. And the final condition of those who reject Him is going to be worse than the first. I almost titled this message after the line, Enjoy to the world, let every heart prepare Him room. But it's more than just prepare Him room. It's receive Jesus right on into the room. So that the Holy Spirit Himself takes up residency in your heart. Receive Him. That's the opposite of what this wicked generation was doing. They were rejecting Him and they were going to pay for it. First, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And then in the eternal judgment. Because if you reject Jesus, there is no hope for you. Instead, receive Him. To all who received Him, to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. How do you know you've truly received Him? Number three, you follow. Matthew tells one more story before this chapter ends. It's a little surprising too. Look up at verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. They were outsiders that day. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. At this point, apparently they had some doubts about Jesus and his actions. Some of the other gospels tell us that. He replied to them, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus does not disown his biological family. Notice, by the way, that he has brothers. I think that answers the question of whether or not Mary stayed a virgin all of her life. But Jesus doesn't really disown Mary or his brothers. We know that he loved her and arranged for someone to take care of her when he was going away. But Jesus is making a profound point that spirit is thicker than blood. Jesus' real family are those who are his disciples. And praise the Lord, it looks like some, maybe all of his biological family, in time was also part of his spiritual family. Mary, of course, and James too, right? But what Jesus is saying is that you know you belong to his family if you follow the will of his Father. If you are his disciple. If you do what he has set out for you to do, if you accept his invitation. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke of discipleship upon you and learn from me. That that same root word for disciple, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's how you join Jesus' real family. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister. Notice, ladies, sister and mother. Is that you? Are you following? Are you doing the will of Jesus' Father in heaven? Do you know what He wants from you? And are you carrying it out? This wicked generation would not follow. They would not repent, even though the Messiah was standing right in front of them. This wicked generation would not receive Jesus as their Messiah. And they were in big trouble. 
And there were probably many who thought they were on the fence about Jesus. Maybe at this point, Mary and Jesus' brothers were undecided. But we know that there really is no fence. You're either in or you're out. You're with Jesus or you're against him. You're following Jesus or you're resisting him. The question is, which are you? Don't be like this wicked generation that Jesus confronted. Learn from their mistakes. Repent, receive, and follow.